The book of Acts, if you've ever read it, the book of Acts is an inspiring book because you read through these stories and you start to see, um, I don't know, you start to get a sense like, man, if, if I were at a church, I would want it to be like one of these churches that we read about in, in, in the book. Now, Acts is this historical document, and it's talking all about like kind of the first baby steps of the church, but you just get a sense that these are people who kind of like have, have really channeled what it is to really live out this relationship with God. And, and I, you've met people like that. You know people like that. Um, they're inspiring. So people who um, either they just deal with life's difficulties in this way where you're like, man, I, ho- I hope I never have that happen to me. But if I do, I want to handle it just like they did. Or people who just, they're just surprising with how well in tune they are with the Spirit of God. So we've been using this metaphor that our, we're sailboats and we want to find the wind of the Spirit, have our sails filled with the wind of the Spirit. Uh, and that's what you read about in the book of Acts. It's just these wonderful stories where it's just like highlight after highlight of all these good things. And so a lot of people have read it and they've thought, man, I think our church needs to be just like the first century church. And what they're saying is we want whatever they had, that meaning, that power, that purpose, the presence of God. And so that's what the book of Acts is all about. But there are a couple of speed bumps. I want to show you um, an example of what I'm talking about. If you have your Bibles and can turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, it's just literally Luke who is writing. He's writing an historical account. And so he's done all this research. He's talked to these eyewitnesses. And he's writing out like, hey, here's what everybody was telling me it was like. And so he's, he, he, this is literally like what he wrote down. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's good because that's kind of what this series has been about. And uh, they spoke the word of God boldly. That's one of the examples of what happens in, in people when they're filled with the Spirit. They, they're like bold about God. Um, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Just such a cool description of life, life in the kingdom, life in the Spirit. So there's these key markers, boldness, generosity, unity. Um, awesome. It's great. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just something the Spirit in you compels you to do. You want to talk about Jesus. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales, which you're like, wow, that's kind of cool. So you imagine, I don't know, you have your vacation home up at the cabin and you're like, we don't need this anymore. The kids are grown. Uh, We're going to sell this thing and we're going to give all of it. It's paid off. We're going to give all the proceeds to the apostles. Like, that's pretty generous. I mean, you can see why people are feeling really good about what God is doing in the world. Like, it's just, it's, there's no have, no have-nots. And it's funny, when I read this, when they talk about possessions, what comes into my mind are things like, you know, your appliances, your microwaves. I mean, would it be like that? Like, so you hear somebody doesn't have a microwave, and you just rush home, unplug your microwave, and take it over to their house and say, here you go, now you can have some popcorn while you watch uh, movies. Like, it, it, but it was like that spirit of, I don't need this, I, you need it, or, or even if I do need it, you need it, or I want you to have it. I mean, just this oneness, this unity. It's good. It's good. And you can see why people are inspired by reading these stories. Now, Luke adds this little anecdote because he's heard of one particular guy who did this. And in verse 36, Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus, that's background that was important to them, but may not be as relevant to us. The apostles called this guy Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He had sold a field he owned. He brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Wow, that's cool. That, I mean, 
I've never done anything like that. I've sold homes, you know, but I basically just sold it to get myself out of the debt on that place so I could get into more debt on another place. But I mean, just sold the property and here you go. Like, here you go. Distribute it as you wish, however you think it needs to be distributed. That's a highlight reel of, of, of church and church life. It's really, really good. Um, and this Barnabas guy, what a good guy. If you were to visit this church, you'd be like, oh, something's there. I, there's something real. There's something happening there as manifested in unity and generosity and all these great things. So let's keep reading because surely the story is just going to keep getting better and better. I mean, I can't wait to hear what more awesome things the uh, author has in store to tell us. All right, let's read chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, now, a man named Ananias. Oh, cool. We're going to hear some cool story about this Ananias guy because he must be in the Bible for good reasons. Together with his wife, Sapphira, they also, connected to the Barnabas story, sold a piece of property. Oh, more people giving. Whoa, this is so great. Uh, verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money. Like, uh-oh, music and background starting to turn a little darker. What is this? Uh, they kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. And they're like, okay, all right. So he didn't give 100%, gave 50%. That's still really good. And then Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And you're thinking, whoa, this story just took a left turn. What is going on here? Uh, verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposable disposal? You could do what you wanted to do with it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Oh, well, this isn't such a cool story. I mean, everything was going really well, and then we came, you know, come to this really hard left turn with this, this couple. Now, we need to know, and it becomes more clear in the second part of the story, we need to know that Ananias and Sapphira were implying that they had given 100% of the proceeds to the apostles. So they were looking for that credit, just like Barnabas got. They wanted some of the prestige that came from this sacrifice. Uh, but they were fudging the numbers a little bit. And so you hear that and you're like, okay, that's a little shady, but they still gave 50%, right? That's still pretty good. That's more than most of us have given to the church when we sold our property. <laughs> that's not bad, 50%. So at this point, it's kind of an embarrassing social faux pas, right? That's all that's happening here. He said he gave it all, but he didn't really give it all. And Peter's like, Buddy, is that really all of it? Oh, you caught me, Peter. I'm sorry, it wasn't. You got caught in a lie. It's happened. You know, we've all been in embarrassing situations. I think uh, Zoom is this great example of the constant potential for embarrassing situations because either your mute is on when you think it's off and you're talking there and people are like trying to wave at you to get you to turn off your mute, or your mute is off when you think it's on and you say something that wasn't really for everybody to hear. The thing about Zoom, and this is just a little aside, if you haven't done a lot of Zoom, the real danger is the chat. That's the real danger. Because sometimes you type things and you think it's going to that person, but you accidentally hit everyone. And unless you want everybody to read what you're saying, you probably shouldn't have done that. It's like that same thing when you accidentally text back someone. You know, you've been texting somebody furiously, and then you get this random text from somebody else, and you still think you're talking to person A, but it actually goes to person B, and you're like, oh, that wasn't for you. You know, delete, delete. And you, there's no way that you have to, you know, get rid of your phone and change your name and move to a foreign country because it's... Uh, it's embarrassing. Awkward. All right. Well, sorry, Ananias. You got caught in a lie. I mean, that's, that's embarrassing, but we've all 
you know, you've told people their babies were cute when their babies were not cute, right? Right? We've all done that. Um, no babies that have been born in the last year here at church, but other babies. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this from Peter, he fell down and died. Whoa, hang on a second. This was an embarrassing social interaction, and Ananias died? If you die from telling lies, then we're kind of all in trouble, at least at some point in our lives. If you die from fudging the truth, uh-oh, he fell down and died. Verse, uh, the rest of verse 5, great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Yeah, of course, you bet. Um, then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Man, that story escalated quickly. That got out of hand really quickly. Um, and the story essentially repeats with this guy's wife, because she comes in. She doesn't know Ananias is dead. Nobody's texted her yet. So she walks in, and Peter's like, hey, uh, Sapphira, by the way, is this the total you got for the property? And she's like, yeah, that's it. And she falls down and dies, and the young men carry her out. And, and, and it ends, the whole story ends in verse 11 with great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What is that? Everything was going so well. Everything was going so smoothly. Everything was just up, 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 up. And then all of a sudden we get to this story and like, what is happening? And this is a disturbing story, to be, to be perfectly honest. It's a disturbing story, even from someone who loves to study the scripture. It seems out of place. It seems strange. Why is it here? Why did Luke choose to include it? Because you could easily just edit it out and just focus on the positive. Um, I was looking at, you know how sometimes they make movie adaptations of, of the Bible, you know, like the story of the Gospels, Passion of the Christ, things like that. I was looking at the adaptation of this story because I thought, oh, that'd be fun. We'd just show everybody this little, uh, you know, this little clip of this Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And I just assumed because it was made by some, I don't know, religious organization that it was going to be like Ananias had a heart attack and he falls down dead. No, it is super gruesome, like horror movie gruesome. And I'm like, I can't show that at church because I would get angry emails from parents because it was so awful, like how they portrayed this scene. It's a weird, disturbing scene. Now, contrast that with um, some of you may or may not know that sometimes we make little children's songs with some of these stories. Uh, and there's a children's song about Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know if any of you know it, but it's this really like happy kind of, you know, like, you know, there's motions and everything. And uh, the whole song is about being a cheerful giver because nine times out of 10, when people preach on this text, it's about you better give. And I don't think that's what this text is about at all. But anyway, the song kind of like, uh, it talks about Ananias and Sapphira, and I don't want to sing it, and you don't want me to sing it, but I'll just tell you a little bit about how it goes. They got together to conspire a plot to cheat the church and get ahead. You can, you can just kind of feel like, you know, the little kids in the, in the kingdom club are dancing as they sing this song. And then right before it gets to the chorus, um, they lied to the Holy Spirit, something, Peter, something, something, I don't remember the details, Crink, and I'm sure remember the lyrics. And then right before you get to the chorus where everybody sings along, it goes, and they both drop dead. And then all the kids at this point are supposed to sing, hey and then they go into the chorus you know it's like what are you doing this is the craziest story and you're singing it like it's just this happy moment like what is so weird so weird it's a disturbing scene it really does raise questions about why is that there why is that there um and yeah what they did was shady but does it deserve death i mean come on and how do you lie to god anyway really because god god knows everything so, I mean, God already knew. It's not like he re they really fooled him. God's like, ah, oh, you got me, and I'm really upset, and now you have to die. And 
they actually were pretty generous. They gave 50% of their property. That's a pretty good thing. So what is going on here? Now, I want you to note the charge, the offense that they had committed. And it, it's repeated twice, kind of using different language. But the first time, it says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, that's really relevant because we're in a series about the Holy Spirit. We're in part eight of a series about the Holy Spirit. And then to Sapphira, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? That's the actual charge here. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, yeah, but there are other stories like this in the Bible. This, there's things like this that don't make sense, that everything seems to be going well, and then it kind of takes a left turn. Some of you are thinking of stories like there's a guy named Uzzah who touched the ark, and God is like, that's it. What's, yeah, that's, a, that's a weird story. There's another story we're going to read here in a minute in the book of Leviticus where a couple guys do something wrong. They didn't get something exactly right, and they drop dead. And the thing is, this story in Acts 5 feels more Old Testament than it does New Testament. You know what I mean? In the New Testament, isn't it supposed to be about grace and redemption and second chances? It's not supposed to be about immediate execution if you mess up. So what is this story doing here? If you thought that, yeah, that feels a little bit more Hebrew Bible than it does, you know, New Testament gospel epistle story of Jesus, yeah, uh, I think you're right. And I think the author is trying to clue us in on something and trying to draw parallels from what is happening in the Old Testament to what is happening in this story. So I, I think there's an, an, an event in the Hebrew Bible that might shed a little bit of light for us on what's happening. So if you have your Bibles, and they can go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, I want you to do that. Take them and move them all the way back to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9. Not a book a lot of people spend a lot of devotional time in because it's full of these laws that we don't really fully comprehend or understand, uh, but they're important. Leviticus chapter 9 starting in verse 23. Moses, okay, we know Moses, yeah, Moses and Aaron, that's his brother, they went into the tent of meeting. Now, do you remember last week? If you weren't here last week, that's okay, you can go back and listen, but do you remember God descended in fire on Sinai, God descended in fire on the temple, his, this is his presence showing up in new places, God descended in fire on people. Well, one of the stories we didn't read was God descending in fire on what's called the tabernacle. And that was God's tent, God's holy place that was temporary until the temple was built. But God showed up and it was this big kind of to-do. It was this big production. And so um, they went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed all the people. I imagine, you know, blessed are you, blah, blah, blah. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. All right, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but we imagine it would have been a nice experience, a good experience. It would have made you feel like, oh, God's real, I'm connected to him. Verse 24, fire came down from the presence of the Lord. There it is again, that fire that represents God's power and presence and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Of course, the idea is that they're worshiping. This is a good moment. This is a highlight. This is one for the memory books. This is one that you really want to start and say, yeah, this is, I remember that was great. Awesome. We'd all want to experience this. Okay, so let's keep reading. What other good stuff is about to happen here? Leviticus 10, verse 1. Aaron's sons, Moses' nephews, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers. They put fire. Now, these were guys who were supposed to work in the temple, and they had specific ceremonial duties in the temple. They put fire in them, and they added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. We don't know specifically what that was, but whatever they did, they did something wrong, 
contrary to his command, fire, now this isn't the good kind, came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Boy, that feels similar to uh, Ananias and Sapphira. There's this Nadab and Abihu, and there's other stories like that, but that feels similar. Like, what is going on? Why would God do that? These people, maybe they didn't get 100% right, but, I mean, they're in the temple. They're worshiping God. This has been a good moment. Everybody's shouting for joy, and they're worshiping God, and all of a sudden, then people die. Like, what is happening? Humans, all of us, have uh, weird idiosyncrasies. We all have little weird hang-ups, little things that we do and think and ways we behave and operate that just are just, they're just a little odd. And we just, we grow up with them, we have them, they just are things that make us feel comfortable the way that we think things should be. But then what happens is those weird people uh, marry another weird person, and then you have this household where this person feels like things need to be done this way, and then this person feels like, well, I've never done it that way, and I'm going to do it this way, and then what happens, right? Fun, happy times, Correct. Um, for example, this is, uh, this is me in, in particular, one of my odd, uh, very few, I don't have very many, but one of the few odd idiosyncrasies that I have is when I clean, I really just move things closer to where they go. So I don't actually put them where they go, but I'll be like, well, now it's two feet closer, so I'm making progress and I feel pretty good, like, looks good, I'm done for the day. It's two feet closer to where it goes and maybe I'll get around to it next time. And Karina's like, why don't you just put it away? That's closer, you know? We're making progress. I can feel good about myself, and we can make more progress tomorrow. So you can imagine it's not real fun for Corrine to have me help her clean. And so when I, hey, Corrine, should we, you know, clean? No, that doesn't wanna, she doesn't want to do it. Not interested. You go somewhere else. In fact, you go somewhere else with the kids, and I'll stay here, and I'll do it right. You know what I mean? How about like folding towels? Some of you have a certain way you fold the towels, and it needs to be just so. And your, your mother passed this down to you from your grandmother and your great-grandmother. Even before the invention of towels, somebody decided this is the way the towels needed to be folded. And you, as a husband or wife, you don't fold the towels the way that you're supposed to fold them. And it just drives you bonkers. And so even when they put the towels away, and you're like, well, that was very kind of you to get, do, the, do the laundry and put the towels away. But then you go back in later, and you fold them correctly, and you put them back in right, because it's got to be done a certain way. We have these weird idiosyncrasies that doesn't really have an explanation, but we just have to do it a certain way. I saw this quote this week as I was uh, processing some of this, like, is this what God is about? And uh, it was really, I thought it was funny. I'll share it with you. Um, the quote is, you know those adorable quirks that you love about each other when you're dating? Well, about 20 years into marriage, those same things are what the police refer to as motive. Because they're not adorable anymore for whatever reason. So, so is that the thing? Is God have just these weird, idiosyncratic things he wants us to do? These weird, like, you just need to do the things this way, and if you don't do it this way, then I'm going to kill you? Is that what happened with Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah? And is that what happened with Ananias and Sapphira? You just didn't do it quite right. You didn't follow the checklist. And so because you didn't do it right, I, ha I, have, to, I have to kill you. Is that, is, is that what's going on? And is, is, this, is, is obeying God just about folding the towels a certain way, even though it doesn't make sense to us and we don't understand why we're just going to fold the towels a certain way? 
One uh, ancient group of followers, or many actually over the years, but one in particular decided that that was what it's about, that this relationship with God, this obedience with God is not necessarily about having any sense of really what God is after or what God wants, but it's about folding the towels a specific way. And so when we read about the Pharisees in the gospel stories, they had come up with rules in order to keep the rules. It wasn't just about the rule itself, it was about rules for how you can keep the rules. And so there was this right amount of water that you had to use to wash your hands. And how much, like on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to work? Well, what constitutes work? Well, how much can you lift before it's work? So they had determined down to the ounce how much weight you could lift before you actually were crossing the line into work or how far you could travel to the inch before you were traveling too far and it now constituted work because they didn't want to accidentally break one of God's arbitrary rules and drop dead. They didn't want that to happen. And so they were very careful with how they kept God's rules. And then Jesus comes along and acts like those things don't matter. And he heals people on the Sabbath and he he gleans uh, wheat on the Sabbath and all these things. It's like he understood something different about what God was after than they did and was trying to model something new and better. In fact, in that story in Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, where they offered unauthorized fire, whatever that is, Uh, rabbinical commentaries suggest 12 different things that they could have done wrong. We don't know which one it is, but here's 12 things that they could have done wrong. And so here, what they had to do was all 12 of those things just so they didn't accidentally get it wrong. Because it's very important to note the text in Leviticus 10 itself doesn't tell us what they did wrong. And so these Pharisees are left to guess at it. Well, let's just guess and let's try to avoid all 12. And you're like, well, I kind of like the spirit of that. But then Jesus came along and modeled something completely different. So what is going on in these stories? What is happening in these stories? Um, A few years ago, the caretakers of the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp, which is now a museum, they had to put out this um, PR statement asking people, when you come visit Auschwitz, which is this concentration camp where lots of people were murdered, when you come... would you please not stand at the gates or stand in front of the gas chambers or stand on the tracks where the trains carried people in and pose for selfies? Would you please not do that? Because you have to remember that a million people were murdered here. And when you act like this is a place for you to get Instagram likes, that this is something that you can use to promote yourself, then that seems wrong. That is disrespectful. That is inappropriate. Is it wrong to pose for selfies? Travis says yes. (laughs) Not a lot of Travis selfies. No, it's not wrong. If you're at the Statue of Liberty or you're at the Golden Gate Bridge or you're downtown Minneapolis and you're like, oh, this this light is not, you know, sure, yeah, whatever, pose for selfies. It doesn't matter. If you're at Auschwitz and you're doing a yoga pose because you want to get Instagram likes, is that wrong? Yeah, there's something weird about it, not because the behavior itself is wrong, but because where you are implies that you should behave differently. Um, A few years ago, Taya and I got to go to the 9-11 Museum in New York City. Of course, there's the memorial, and if you've been there, it's just this really kind of amazing, somber place, and then you can go to the actual museum, and it's just, it's unbelievable. 
you know, so even if you don't have much of a connection to 9-11 or you weren't alive, it's just this really moving place to be in. And you're down in this, uh, like, well, subterranean area, kind of basement level area, and you're just looking at all these displays, all these stories. You're seeing actual, like, you can see the footings of the building and this twisted metal and this wreckage. And it's just this somber, sobering atmosphere. There's no tourists down there who are slurping big gulps. There's no people chomping away at, like, chili dogs from 7-Eleven. Not because it's wrong to drink a big gulp or wrong to eat a chili dog, but because there's something about this place that requires a different sort of behavior. It just does. We get that with, with space. We, we get that there's certain places that feel like, hey, the normal, the normal mode of behavior just wouldn't work here. It wouldn't be good here. We, we understand that concept in, in general. Like, so when you're talking about the temple in Israel, you get that, that people wouldn't have just walked into the temple if they had barbecue on the, sauce on their face, wouldn't have gone over to like the Holy of Holies where the curtains are and like grabbed a curtain and, you know, wiped the barbecue sauce off. It would have felt wrong and inappropriate because this was where the presence of God dwelt. And, and it required different behavior. So in Leviticus... We're told that God's problem is, we're told what his problem is. It doesn't say what they did wrong, but we're told what God has a problem with. And it's Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. Moses said to Aaron, Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, my space, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. Now, when you read that in the NIV, it sounds like God's making a demand, but he's not. It's a statement of fact. It's a reality. He's not saying, you better treat me right. You better respect me. He's saying, I'm holy, and when you approach me, you got to be holy too because of the nature of who I am. In this, in this series, we've talked a lot about the Spirit, but we haven't talked a lot about the holy. And almost every time the Spirit is referenced, it's referenced as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Fire is hot, water is wet, snow is cold. God is holy. He's other. He's the, he's the source of life and light and truth and beauty and goodness. He is holy. And we can't just waltz into his presence and just behave casually as if this is no big deal because it is a big deal. And so on the base of Mount Sinai, God's presence showed up and people freaked out. And they said, Moses, you can go talk to him, but we know that we, <laughs> we're, we're not holy enough for, for, for that yet. When, when Solomon's temple was dedicated, people freaked out. They couldn't even go in the temple because the glory of the Lord was there. When Isaiah saw a vision of God in the temple, he was like, oh, no, I'm done for now because God is holy. Because they understood that they were getting closer to that source of inapproachable light that 1 Timothy talks about. God is holy. Every uh, few years you hear about a hiker that wandered off the trail and got lost. And they can't find him. And then eventually they find the hiker's body. And the story, the news report will say something like, oh, well, this hiker succumbed to the elements. Right? They'll say something like they died of exposure. Nothing happened to them. They were just out too long, and they died. And nobody reads those stories and is like, wow, nature's the worst. The forest is the worst. It's so mean. It's so unjust. No, we look at those stories and we say, the hiker did something wrong. The hiker messed up because they weren't prepared for the situation that they were entering into. The hiker messed up because nature is just being nature. 
If somebody falls over a boat crab fishing in, uh, you know, in the Bering Sea, nobody's like, oh, the Bering Sea is so mean. It's so wrong. That's so unjust. Why does it do that? No, the Bering Sea is being itself. And if you're not prepared to deal with it, you're going to run into problems. God is holy. And if you try to enter into God's presence without being prepared, if you try to do something casual in this place that is meant to be special and sacred, well, then God is like, this is a problem here. So God's spirit and presence descend on the mountain. God's spirit and presence descend to the temple. And then in Acts chapter 2, we talked about this list last week in, de- in depth. God's spirit and presence descend into people. We now are the holy. We are the holy temple of God. And you know what? Scripture is pretty clear that there are some things about the way that we live and the choices we make and the way that we treat others that are inappropriate because we contain the power and presence of God. We are holy, sacred space. What we do matters, not just not because it, it in of itself is good or bad, but because we contain the power and presence of God living in us, living in this sacred space. I mean, it's unbelievable to think about. It's unbelievable to, to try to wrap our minds around. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, they treated as casual something that was dangerous and holy. Ananias and Sapphira, they treated as something to be used for their own purposes God's holy presence that had created this beautiful community. And they thought, you know what? We are going to use God's beautiful community. We're going to use these people who have been given the power and presence of God. We're going to use it to get Instagram likes. We're going to use it to get the same acclaim that Barnabas had because he looks pretty good and he's gotten some clout from that. We're going to do that, but we're going to fudge it a little bit. So we're going to take advantage of the Holy Spirit in order to make ourselves look good. And God says, no, you can't do that. That's not the way this works. You've become exposed. You have succumbed to the elements because I am holy. But some of you are thinking, well, like, okay, wait a second, but have I ever lied to the Holy Spirit? I mean, what, how would that even do? I've never, some of you are like, well, I've never offered unauthorized fire in the temple. Never done that. Um, some of you, I've never sold my land, given half of it to the apostles, but, but told them it was the whole amount. So what is the takeaway for me here? Well, let me encourage you to do something as we wrap up this morning. Um, once you begin to see this framework of us being holy people, by the way, this is important, um, the, the word holy is most often attached to the Spirit in the New Testament. Most often. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Second most often, it's attached to the word people. Holy people, holy people, holy people. And once you begin to realize the way that these apostles and authors of Scripture were writing and the the framework from which they were writing these letters that they wrote, you begin to see this everywhere. And I just want to encourage you to look this up this afternoon in the book of Ephesians, because chapters 1 through 3 are all about how we became holy, how God created sacred space in humanity. That's what it's all about. Just read the whole thing. It's beautiful prose. And then chapters 4 through 6 are how we operate as sacred space and all the things that we need to do, all the things that would be inappropriate for us to do now, all the behaviors that we need to put away and behaviors that we need to put on. But I want to draw your attention just to two passages as we wrap up. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, starting in verse 29. You've heard this verse before, but I don't know that we've understood it in the context that that I think uh, Paul is presenting it. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. All right, well, that, I ruined that this week. I ruined that yesterday, actually. Um, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Okay, Patrick, that verse is good, and we should encourage people. That sounds good. That's an aspirational goal. What does it have to do with me being sacred space? Well, look at what verse 30 says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Attach, the and attaches it to the first verse. With whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You have become sacred space. So therefore, there's verse 31, right back to it. Get rid of the bitterness and the rage and the anger and the brawling and the slander, along with every form of malice. You can't treat other people that way because that's not supposed to be inside you now because you're sacred space. And often you're treating other people who are sacred space that way. Don't do that anymore. You're holy space. I don't know that we've ever thought about the fact that we, what we, we should watch what we say because we are sacred space. The thing, when we say discouraging and mean-spirited things, we're taking selfies at Auschwitz. When we're, when we're saying rude, mean, horrible things to one another, when we're treating people unkindly, it's, we're at the 9-11 museum and we're slurping on a, uh, you know, a, a chili dog you know, in total disregard to what we're experiencing and what we're seeing. That, it's inappropriate. Look at what he says in um, verse 5, verse 3. He says, among you, there must not even be a hint. I don't even want to hear a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. Well, why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. You are God's sacred space. In my experience, and, and some of you have experienced this too, um, I had a friend that was telling me this story, and I don't know, it's one of those things that's always stuck with me, um, but you know how sometimes we like to treat the building, the church building, as the sacred space? This is the sacred space, the, the, you know, these four walls or the, you know, this carpet, this stage, whatever. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, after church. You know, a lot of churches have their baptistry up on stage, kind of like we do in our fellowship hall. And it was just one of those small churches, you know, there's 30 people at church, and they're just hanging out after church like you do, talking. And he was te a teenager at the time, 15 or 16 years old, and he had gone up on stage with some friends, and they were just standing there, and he was leaning on the, um, on the, the, the railing uh, where the baptistry was, and they're just talking, you know, just normal, normal after-church stuff, and he casually, without thinking, he kind of leans over, and he just, you know, runs his hand through the, the baptistry waters, you know, just kind of stirring up the baptistry waters, you know, no, no big deal. Well, <laughs> some deacon from the back thought that was a big deal and came roaring down the aisle, and I don't know what he said exactly, but there was like fire in his eyes, and I, this, is, this is my interpretation. This is Patrick's reenactment of the situation. Do not touch the sacred waters of baptism with your unpurified hands, or whatever, right? That's me making it up. I don't know. But that was the gist of what he was communicating. So he was yelling at this 15-year-old who felt stupid, felt like a dummy, felt like he had committed some horrible sin. He was yelling at him to protect the holy waters. And how ironic is it that the problem was is he was desecrating holy space by yelling at that 15-year-old and defending water, plain old H2O, that had nothing special or holy about it. How backward have we gotten this so often? People 
are the, the sacred space. They're the power and presence of God residing in them. And people deserve to be treated well. We, with the power and presence of God living in us, deserve to be treated better than we treat ourselves sometimes. Well, shouldn't have that guy been struck dead if he got it wrong, right? According to Acts chapter 5, Leviticus 10, shouldn't God have been... <coughs> I mean, honestly, shouldn't we all be dead? Like, if, if it's about holy space, I mean, we've all done things that were wrong, and we've all desecrated holy space. Shouldn't we all be dead, right? We should, none of us should leave because we, we're dead. We'll have to have young men wrap us up and carry us out. Like, well, why aren't we dead then? Well, let me say this, and this is so important that we understand this. If God in His grace doesn't make us feel the full weight of our sin... It shouldn't be assumed that our sin doesn't matter, but that God's grace is amazing. And we get that wrong. We think like, well, I didn't die, so God must not be upset. No, God is gracious. God is gracious not wanting that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. And so maybe when we think about stories like Ananias and Sapphira and Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah and others, maybe it's not so much that God is overreacting to his holiness, but that we are underreacting to his holiness. That we need to understand God's power and presence through his spirit lives in us. So important. All right, next week, uh, Steve is going to walk us through a few uh, examples and acts and some other places of where the Spirit was leading and guiding people. And then my plan, fingers crossed, my plan two weeks from now is to begin to get into the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. I know a lot of people have some questions about that, but I think we cannot even begin to talk about those things until we understand what it truly means to have God's power and presence living in us. We are holy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time that we can spend together thinking through these strange texts, Lord, these things that had we been composing scripture, we probably would have uh, edited out. But Lord, you put them there for us to understand something important and valuable about who you are and what it means to, for us to have the spirit living in us. God, we still fully don't understand this concept of holiness that we could spend so much time talking about, but I pray that we would have that, that appropriate sense of honor and regard and respect for your spirit living in us. And Lord, I pray that it would, it would convict us that many of the things we say, the things we do, the things we think need to change because we are holy places in which your spirit dwells. We thank you for that reality and that truth, and we pray that you would give us more of your spirit to help us become people who are a more appropriate dwelling place for your power and your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>